Well, good morning, everyone. Pleasure to be with you and to worship our great God. And yeah, how awesome is our Lord and Savior, Jesus? How, how amazing is this day he has made? Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Um, one announcement, we do have the, God willing, the creche starting up next week. So that will be for uh, infants to four, I think is the age range. So if you have kids in that range, then they'll go there. So praise the Lord for his provision and um, yeah, really rejoicing in God's goodness and his word to us today. We'll be in Genesis chapter 21 and let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you are glorious and good, that it's you who have sought us. You have loved us first, and so we love you. Thank you for opening our eyes to see you, how glorious you are, and I pray we would, we would grow in our understanding of how good and awesome and excellent and magnificent you are, Lord, that words fail to describe uh, how, how great you are, and I pray our hearts would just bow before you, that our hearts would, would just be broken in contrition, in humility, and to rejoice in your goodness that you've extended to us through our Lord Jesus. And I pray that you would minister your truth to our hearts and we'd receive your word and it would bear much fruit in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis 21, starting in verse two, uh, 22. So everyone in the body of Christ, we are a work in progress uh, God's done this wonderful work in drawing us to himself in receiving the gospel. And we know that the work he has begun, he will be faithful to complete. And spiritually, we are complete in him right now, sitting in the heavenlies with the Lord, our Savior. Yet we continue living on earth in these bodies. We still have to live out, work out our salvation. And God has miraculously raised us from dead in sins to having new life and we're all in the process of learning to submit to God and learning to obey him and trust him in the storm, in the night seasons, in the difficult times that we would be seeking him and trusting him and believing that he will do as he has said. Some people view getting saved as the end. Like once you get saved, woo, hard work's done. Now moving on to other things, living our life how we want. And that's not at all how it works. That's just the beginning of a new work. Like God has done this work. We are born again. And now we are living Christ's life through us. He is living through us. Think about a baby being born. We don't go, oh good, the baby's born. Good. And just walk away. No, we tend that baby. We care for that baby. We carry that child and we begin to teach and train and clean and, and, uh, protect and there's all this there's a whole life ahead of that child and so when you're born again it's not like okay good going to heaven it, there is a life to be lived with jesus christ and a baby's born to grow to develop to to be trained to recognize the face of mom and dad to know their voice to know when they're around and when the, hey where are they and to be a little concerned and to go find them and to sit up, to crawl, to walk. And it's like we don't stop there. We teach kids numbers and letters and how to read and write and to form complete sentences and to have manners. To say yes, please, and thank you. It's like our room expands exponentially by rooms and rooms 
according to knowledge and ability. And the Holy Spirit, he's taken up residence in our hearts. He shines light on areas of our lives that are not in agreement with him. He shows us areas where we need to repent. He shows us where reform, like urgent reform is needed. And he's the one who transforms us from inside. He wants to change us for his glory. And I think about a, a little child learning something new. They're very proud that they can dress themselves. Now, not well, right? The, the buttons are not, there's missing a button here and things are not matching, two different kinds of socks. And you're like, huh. yes, you did it. Good job. And you praise them, but they're still room for improvement, right? Um, and I think about a, a kid who's able to write their name. And they're very proud of that. And I have a picture of me just in my own, my own childhood, a slide of me drawing a self-portrait. You can see I was very uh, pleased with my abilities. <laughs> and uh, the fact that my ability has only moderately improved from when I was three, it shows that there's a lot of room to grow. <laughs> like you're like, is that a face? I'm not really sure. I, I don't know if I could do too much better, but no matter how spiritually mature you are or how mature you think you are, we have infinite room to grow and change because Jesus Christ is our example. He's perfect in every way. He's glorious and good and he always does the will of the Father. And we are growing to do that ourselves. But it's like, we, that's me spiritually. Like, this is all I can do. We need him. We need to grow. And we're called, God will finish the work, but we're called to work with him. We're called to co cooperate. And we might think that when one sin is dealt with and we're obedient in one area, well, good, the hard work's done. But there still can be conflicts. There will be to work through as our eyes are opened it's like Abraham was obedient to send Ishmael and Hagar away, but he still had conflict. He still had to work things out relationally with other people. And that's what we'll be talking about today in Genesis 22 verse, 20, excuse me, 21 verse 22. And it came to pass at that time that Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, spoke to Abraham saying, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, Swear to me by God that you will not deal falsely with me, with my offspring or with my posterity, but according to the kindness that I have done to you, you will do to me and to the land in which you have dwelt. And Abraham said, I will swear. After Hagar and Ishmael had settled in the wilderness of Paran, Abraham met with Abimelech and Phicol, the general of his army. Now Abimelech, that's a title of a Philistine king. We don't know for sure that this is the same Abimelech that rebuked Abraham in Genesis 20. Remember, Abraham had gone down to that area and said, oh, Sarah is my sister when she was his wife in an attempt to deceive. And, and he was rebuked for it. He's like, well, why, why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Well, I didn't think there was the fear of God in this place. And so he was reproved. What we do know is that this Abimelech had observed Abraham and he said, I've, I can see that God is with you wherever you go. Like God is with you in all that you do. Abraham's moving from place to place, but one thing was the same. God was with him. He was with him when he was in Egypt. He was with him when he was in, by the, the palm trees of Mamre. God was with him when he pursued the kings to the north and brought back all the 
the, uh, those taken captive. God was with him and gave him a child in his old age. It was a miraculous thing. And God was with him to protect him, whether he was in Canaan or whether he was in Egypt or whether he was in the land of the Philistines. And when he lied about his marital status, God remained with him graciously. He answered his prayer. He brought healing to Abimelech and his family. Abimelech recognized that Abraham's greatness came from the God who was with him, who had not forsaken him, despite his wanderings. Now, when we desire God's blessing upon our lives, we often connect that with prosperity or um, like success in our efforts, that we will get what we want, if we're going to put it really pl- plainly. Like that's blessing, right? Getting what you want. We can, we can interpret blessing in that way. And we can mistakenly connect the blessing of God with good health or favorable circumstances or getting our, our way. And we take for granted the greatest blessing that God's given us, which is himself. That he's given us his presence to be with us. I mean, to know that God is with you, how does that change your outlook in a difficult season, in a troubling time, where you're like, but God is with me. He won't leave or forsake me. What a comfort there is wherever we go if he's with you and you're with him. And we can take that for granted. This relationship that Abraham had with God was by grace. God had called Abraham. God was with him. It wasn't based upon his perfect performance. He had deceived and yet God remained with him. Abimelech noticed God was with Abraham. I wonder how he knew. How did he know God was with him? The most obvious reason would be that Abraham spoke of God, that he gave him credit for his wealth, his prosperity, for his child in his old age. Like God gave me this child and God gave me Ishmael as well. It's like unlike the idols that Abimelech possibly and likely served and others that you had to carry around with you. It's like God was carrying Abraham around with him. God was protecting him and providing for him every step. And having God with you is more important than other people knowing God is with you. But if God is with you, other people will know. They may not be able to put their finger on it at times, but if he is with you, it will be evident. So Abimelech, he asks Abraham, he says, don't swear falsely, deal falsely with me, uh, my children or my house. There was this pattern of deception we see in the life of Abraham. And he said, don't deal with me falsely, make this covenant as we'll see. And so Abraham confessed, yes, that, that is incorrect what I did. In fact, I, uh, we always do this though. And he kind of justified himself why he called his wife, his sister, And then Ishmael and Hagar are sent out and that all paved the way for this union, this covenant, this agreement that we would show kindness to each other and our descendants after one another. I think this request, it shows that Abimelech had forgiven Abraham for lying because he's wanting to make a covenant with him. He's wanting a relationship with him instead of going, you know what, that guy, forget him. He deceived me. No, he's, he's wanting a relationship now. Biblical forgiveness, it results in a restoration of relationship. It has the potential to redeem wrongs. 
and to make bonds of love even stronger than they were before. When it's dealt with, but when it's ignored, the fractures remain. Verse 25, then Abraham rebuked Abimelech because of a well of water which Abimelech's servants had seized. And Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, nor had I heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two of them made a covenant. So as they're coming together for this agreement, something comes to light that hadn't been spoken about before. Previously, Abimelech, he had rebuked Abraham for lying to him. But now Abraham, it says, reproved Abimelech because this well of water that he dug had been taken by his servants. Abimelech had said, Abraham, go anywhere you want in my land. It's all like yours. You dwell where you want to live. Abraham chose a place to dwell. He dug a well. Guess who came along? Abimelech's servants, and they took the well. And we know that in a dry and arid land, water is life. You need water for survival. You need it for your flocks and your herds. This word reproved or rebuked, it's to reason together, to be vindicated, to be chastened, to lay charge against. I like the Webster definition. It says, blame expressed to the face, censure for a fault. Apparently this was news to Abimelech. He had not heard about this before. He's like, wow, I didn't even know that had happened. Until you said something, I wasn't aware that this had happened. This unilateral action by his servants that by what he's saying, he would not have approved of. And as I read this, I was like, you know, this is like water in a dry and thirsty land for me. Because as much as we don't like to be rebuked or reproved, or we don't like to reprove others either, it is really needed for people who want to walk in agreement with each other and with the Lord. Abraham hadn't brought it immediately to Abimelech's attention, but he did in the end. Here we see two people avoiding common pitfalls, so common for us today. Because we've learned by example or experience that we dare not trespass upon the sacred ground and rights of each individual to do and say as they please without question. We remove the shoes from off of our feet to avoid stepping on people's toes even when we have a right and and responsibility to say something, to speak up with the idea of reconciliation, restoration of relationship. And our mistake can be we lash out in anger, right? And and I'm just speaking from experience in all of these. I'm not saying that I, uh, I have this down. So we can lash out because of anger and we can uh, nurse a grudge because there's been an offense, but we haven't said anything. We're just like, I'll take the high road, but I'm going to keep this bitterness in my heart. The irony, right? We're silent to that person, but we vent our feelings to others. So we don't talk to the, the one who's offended us. We talk to everybody but that person. And then we can resent others when they're totally ignorant of any offense. They have no idea that they've trespassed or people connected to them have. And real relationship is a facade. Years ago in the States, I was approached by a brother. We had had a prayer meeting. I think it was a Thursday night. And he's like, hey, can we go to a cafe afterwards? And, and I just had this sense like, oh man, what did I do? I'm getting pulled into the principal's office type feeling. 
as a kid. And as we're driving to the cafe separately, I'm like, Lord, what is this about? And he, I just felt like he was saying, humble yourself. So in this conversation, he laid something out that had been bothering him for years. I was completely unaware that I had offended him in any way, but the offense was real and he was struggling with it. And I had this opportunity to apologize to him for my sin and the forgiveness and restoration in that relationship was beautiful. Like it was a relationship that was broken that I didn't even know was broken. And after that, we were closer to one another than we ever had been before. I like what Matthew Henry said. He said, no more can be expected from an honest man that he be ready to do right as soon as he knows that he has done wrong. It's possible for an honest person to make an honest mistake and a dishonest mistake, right? A wise person can make foolish choices just like Abraham did. Love prompts us to meet face to face, to talk these things out, to reprove or to accept reproof. Because it went both ways, right? Abimelech is talking to Abraham at one stage and now Abraham's talking to Abimelech. This is relationship. This is love and action. This is caring. This is like, I want to show kindness to you and I want you to show kindness to me. And then what does Abraham do? He reproves him. That is kindness. These questions are asked not to humiliate, not to belittle someone, but an impetus to consider matters of the heart that perhaps they have not thought about before. And we have tons of scriptures that show the folly of not heeding rebuke or a warning. Yet how can you receive corruption when it is withheld? Turning your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 1, starting in verse 5. We read of the son of David, Adonijah. This is a classic case of what happens when rebuke is withheld. Those searching questions aren't asked because you, well, we'll we'll talk about it. Getting ahead of myself. 1 Kings 1, starting in verse 5. It says, Then Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. And his father had not rebuked him at any time by saying, why have you done so? He was also very good looking. His mother had borne him after Absalom. Adonijah, he's a, he's a prince in a king's house and he's left to his own devices. He followed the example of his brother Absalom and he exalted himself. He had money. He had an entourage. He was good looking. And he's decided, I'm going to be king. Big, a couple of big problems with this. He hadn't spoken to the king, the one who is king right then. And he hadn't spoken to God who anointed him king. But he exalted himself. He said, I will be king. And verse 6, it says the self-exaltation of Adonijah, it correlated with David withholding rebuke from his son. It said, he never asked him, why are you doing that? Why are you exalting yourself? Why are you lying? Why would you do that? And make him answer the question, or at least think about it. So parents, consider the implications of withholding those searching questions in correcting your children. 
And it's not only appropriate for a parent to reprove a child, but also for a subject to reprove his king. We see that in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah had been in prison. In Jonathan the scribe's house, King Zedekiah secretly summons him and he says, what's the word from the Lord? And this is what Jeremiah said. After he had been in prison and after, and he's speaking to the man who holds his life in his hand in a way because he's the king. Jeremiah 37, 18, 19. Moreover, Jeremiah said to King Zedekiah, what offense have I committed against you, against your servants or against this people that you have put me in prison? Where now are your prophets who prophesied to you saying, the king of Babylon will not come against you or against this land? I mean, I was blown away when I read that this week. I was like, whoa, that is exactly what I would not be saying if I was brought before the king. And I guess that's why I'm not a prophet, (laughs) prophet Jeremiah, because it's like, that's not what the flesh would do. Is like you're talking to the supreme ruler of your country and you're like calling him out about like, why did you put me in prison? And what's with your false prophets who have prophesied lies to these people? So he just very bold in God. He has no fear. He has a fear of God, not the fear of man. The fear of God trumps the fear of man. This reproof was entirely appropriate for self-examination. He's not standing in judgment of him. He's asking him some questions. And God asks these kinds of questions. He asked Elijah when he fled from Jezebel and he's in the cave and he said, what are you doing here, Elijah? God asked Jonah after he spared Nineveh, is it right for you to be angry? Jesus asked the apostles, have I not chosen you and one of you is a devil? So he's asking these questions. God asks us questions because he knows our hearts. He knows it's a, it's a question we need to ponder and to think through and to respond to righteously. For those who are born again by faith in Jesus, we've been regenerated. We've been filled with the Holy Spirit who convicts of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. God's with us and he can reprove us and also use others to reprove us to the face because it's needed. This week I spent a couple of days painting in the children's rooms. uh, And one item that's really indispensable for painting is a drop cloth. Anyone learn that the hard way? Like, I don't need that. It's just a small job. And oh, oh, no. Paint tends to drip and splatter. It flings off of the roller skin. It it gets everywhere. And when your eyesight's not as good as it used to be, you don't see it. You don't see it until it's dry. And then it's really hard to clean up. And it would be silly to say good painters have no need of drop cloths. If you're really a good painter, you don't need to drop anything. It will all, every splash of paint is going to land on the desired surface and nowhere else. Well, why do you think they wear white? Because it gets on them too. On the contrary, professional painters use drop cloths because they know paint goes everywhere, that it does drip, and it's a permanent material. It's much easier to prevent it from going on the carpet than trying to clean it up later. It would be ridiculous to suggest that a man of faith like Abraham or a good Christian will not have sinful faults or make serious errors of judgment. A genuine believer sees their need for correction because we've come to Christ because we're sinners. We need salvation. We need forgiveness. 
And it's like what Proverbs 17.10 says. It says, rebuke is more effective for a wise man than a hundred blows on a fool. Notice, rebuke and blows do not make men wise. They don't make you wise. But they re- your response to them reveals if you are wise or not. Abimelech first rebukes Abraham. Abraham now reproves Abimelech for the conduct of his service. So it goes both ways. Led by the Lord and his love, we can reprove others. And we also must own our need for reproof. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy, starting in verse 3. 2 Timothy 3, verse 13. So Paul is writing to Timothy here. He's giving him a warning, and I just included that for a bit of context. The context is he's writing about the persecution of those who live godly in a world of sin and how God's given his word so we can be kept from deceptions. 2 Timothy 3, verse 13. But evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work." The way you can know what deception is, is because you know the truth in God's word. And God's given us his word to know truth from error. And it's terrible when a deceiver is deceived. They really think they're going the right way. But the Lord uses his word to reveal the deceptions so that we can know what's righteous. We can know how to walk in truth. And so Paul, he's exhorting Timothy, continue in the scriptures. You've learned it. You know that it's true. Keep doing it. You've been assured that they are true without error. And then he says, all scripture is given by God. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction and instruction in righteousness. So God's word teaches us. God's word calls out our sin. God's word corrects us and it guides us in how we need to change. And it's a change that God is faithful to do when we yield to him. To what end? It says there, So the followers of Jesus can be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Colossians 2.10, it says we are complete in Jesus, the head of all principality and power. And it's kind of like this, like that drop cloth keeps paint from hitting the carpet. Sometimes God uses others to catch our faults. They notice things we don't see and they reprove us to walk uprightly, humbly and free from sin. And it's our response to correction That shows if we're wise or not. Not that we've made a mistake. That's not an indictment against wisdom. We are human. Therefore flawed. But praise the Lord for his word. That guides us. And his love that governs us. Genesis 21 verse 28. And Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock by themselves. Then Abimelech asked Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs which you have set by themselves? And he said, you will take these seven ewe lambs from my hand that they may be my witness that I have dug this well. Therefore he called that place Beersheba 
because the two of them swore an oath there. Thus they made a covenant at Beersheba. So Abimelech rose with Phicol, the commander of his army, and they returned to the land of the Philistines. At this gathering, Abraham has set these seven ewe or female lambs by themselves. And Abimelech asked, well, what's that about? <laughs> he noticed. And Abraham said, you're going to re- receive these from my hand as a token that I have indeed dug the well and I have rights to this water. And from what I've read, you can't have, a, if you're breeding lambs, you can't have enough female females because they are the source of more lambs. Uh, the males, most of them are castrated and used for meat. Only the best will be used for breeding. So the rams, select rams, it reduces their aggression. Uh, it's just not safe to have a whole bunch of rams. And so they'll just have a few rams and then all the rest females that are producing. I think like it, it's r- relatively quick. I'm, I'm not a lamb breeder, but looked into it a little bit. So they were kind of like this receipt or invoice that they had made this transaction. Like, yes, you're agreeing that this well is the one that I have dug. And being you lambs, it's a symbol of fruitful, a fruitful future. There's this hope of fruitfulness through their kindness toward one another. It's, it's like, I guess, extending an olive branch, but with these lambs to say, look, you're going to benefit from all these. And this is how we are all going to benefit from our relationship together. So this place was called Beersheba. It means the well of the oath. So they, they swore to one another, I'm going to be kind and honest to you and to your descendants. And that this well has been dug by Abraham. And this kindness between us will continue for generations to come. Now that term from Dan to Beersheba it became a, a phrase in Israel like north to south. So Beersheba is in the south of Israel. Now, this is the first time we see the word witness in scripture. He says, these lambs are the witness of what we've done. Later in Genesis, Jacob and Laban, they made a big pile of stones and they ate a meal on those stones. And they said, this is going to divide our territory. We will never cross this pile of stones to do harm to one another. That was their covenant they made. This word witness, it means evidence of a transaction by some tangible memorial. So some physical evidence. I think of when the children of Israel, they entered into the land of Canaan. The tribes of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh were on the east side of the Jordan. So they were divided by this river. And so they built a large replica of the altar, which initially incensed the other Jews because they thought, oh no, they're starting idolatrous practices. But they go, no, no, this is just a, it's a memorial. It's a replica as a witness that we are part of you. We don't want future generations to think that we're not part of the covenant agreement with God. And we also want to convey to our people that we have a responsibility before God to keep his word and to go up to the temple to worship the tabernacle at the certain season that God had said in his law. Witnessing John the Baptist, he was one who proclaimed the coming Messiah. He was a witness. He testified of the true identity of Jesus, that he was the Christ, the promised Messiah, the son of David and the son of God. Jesus went on to say in John 5, 
36 and 37. But I have a greater witness than John's for the works which the father has given me to finish. The very works that I do bear witness of me that the father has sent me and the father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. Jesus says, John's testified of me, he's bore witness to the truth, but the signs that I've done among you, they bear witness of the truth. It's a stronger, it's a tangible presentation of the truth of his divinity, that Jesus is the son of God. And the father also bore witness, right? When he said from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. After Jesus instituted the new covenant in his own blood, he told his disciples, you will be my witnesses. Now that's pretty amazing in light of the example with Abraham. Here are these lambs. They testify of the transaction that's taken place. You are the witness. You will be his witnesses of the transaction that has taken place between Jesus and the father, his blood being atoning for the sins of the world and you coming to Christ and being filled, regenerated with the Holy Spirit. We are filled with the living water, the Holy Spirit that God has sent, who enables us to bear witness faithfully that Jesus is the Christ. So that word, uh, well, I'll read the passage in, in Acts 1, 7, and 8. Jesus said to his disciples, and he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Notice it didn't say you will witness. It said you will be witnesses. It's who you are. You will be witnesses. It was, and that word is not the verb as witness. It's the noun which is martis, which is from, we get the word martyr, which means one who testifies. So it was not the, the stones thrown at them. It was not the executioner's blade that made them martyrs. They were martyrs because they were witnesses of that transaction. Born again, followers of Jesus. So if you're born again by grace through faith in Jesus, your life is a witness that testifies of the new and living way that God has provided to give us forgiveness of sins, to have assurance of eternal life, to know God, to serve him, to follow him. When the disciples of Jesus were brought before the high priest, you might remember what happened. He, he said, you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Right, they were there. He said, we, we've told you, don't be preaching in this man's name. You're filling this city with his doctrine. You want to bring this man's blood on us. And yes, but not in the way that they thought. The disciples preached the gospel, not to condemn them for their murders or their deceit, their thefts and adultery, but so they would acknowledge their sin and repent so that they would be washed clean, born again, and have eternal life. It was not to humiliate them. It was not to condemn them. They were condemned already, but there was now a way of salvation that was given by God that they could enter into by faith in Christ, the one they killed. 
Acts 5, 29, 32. This is Peter's response. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit to whom, in, Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. So being witnesses of Jesus is not what you do primarily, but who you are. Born again by faith in Christ. So these, these seven ewe lambs, they had potential of a fruitful future. And through the filling of the Holy Spirit, we too can be spiritually fruitful for his glory. To bring honor to his name. I mean, how awesome. But that God would select us right? That he would choose us, setting us aside by ourselves to be his chosen people, a chosen generation to, through whom he's like, they are my witnesses. They testify of what I've done. Amazing. Genesis 21, 33. Then Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and there called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines many days. The covenant's been established. Abraham, he plants a tamarisk tree in Beersheba. I looked a little into tamarisk trees. It's a low shrub or a, it's a, a large shrub or a low tree. And they're very prolific, very hardy. They can endure um, pretty rough conditions, poor saline soil even. They are very tough to eradicate. From what I've read, they have this extensive root system. They demand a lot of water. And uh, in an arid environment, that's not the kind of tree I would be planting, personally. I was reading that uh, a large tamarisk tree can transpire some 2,500 liters of water a day. That's a lot of water from one tree. You can plant a tamarisk tree and it will dry up the water. And then because it has that, that say, it can tolerate saline conditions, it will drop those leaves and add more salt to the soil and kill the native species. So it's very, very hardy. It's like Abraham planted this tree that's going to demand a lot of water, trusting that God is going to preserve him, his children for generations because of the covenant God had made with Abraham. The everlasting God the Lord who always keeps his promises. It's a beautiful picture. This tree that Abraham planted, it li likely outlived Abraham and Abimelech, but not the almighty God because God was with him. God was going to fulfill that promise. He was going to keep water in that well for generations to come because of what God had promised. And so the Lord who brought Abraham into Canaan and established him, helped him navigate this conflict over the well, promoted unity, and there's this peaceful resolution with the planting of this tree. As God has made a covenant with Abraham, so he has made a covenant with us. And like a tree planted by rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper, we have received the living water of the Holy Spirit who fills us. And you know, when you're born again, there's a lot of new conflicts that are introduced into your life 
conflicts that were not there before. Because not only do we have conflicts on the outside, because we're now living for God in a godless world, but we are conflicted sometimes inside on matters of the conscience. There are now things that we're aware of, we weren't aware of before, that we're like, is this right? Is this wrong? How should I respond to this? And this agreement and unity, we, we're like, I wish we could have that. Like what Abraham and Abimelech had where they're just freely talking to each other. I, that's foreign to my life. And we can wonder, we can worry, we can wander like a person in the desert looking for refreshment. And we can forget about God's promises. We can forget to call on the Lord. We're very overwhelmed and we don't seek the Lord. We don't wait on him. We forget. And I'd like to turn to Isaiah as we close. Isaiah 40, starting in verse 27. It's a gentle rebuke from the Lord to his people who lost sight of him. Despite the fact that he dwelt in their midst. Like God's presence was in the temple. God's presence went before them when they left Egypt. God was with them. God was with Abraham, but he didn't always remember. He didn't always live in light of that fact. And we are the same. It's a reproof and instruction to us as well. God's question. Isaiah 40, 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my just claim is passed over by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak and to those who have no might, he increases strength. Even the youth shall be faint and be weary and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So many of our problems, our troubles, our conflicts, they arise because we don't really believe that God is God. That he, he is not weary like we are weary. And he is not forgetful like we are forgetful. And we feel like my way is hidden from God. My just claim is not being properly addressed in a timely fashion, in the way that I want it to be. And we wonder if God's heard or he knows what we're going through and when he's going to do something, something that we approve of and agree with. And that's kind of our idea. It's we who have forgotten the everlasting God, the creator of the earth, that he does not faint. He does not grow weary, that he understands all. We faint, we fall, but those who wait on the Lord, they will renew their strength. By faith in Jesus, we can run our race with endurance that's set before us. This word faint, it means to grow weary or exhausted. And I wonder, does that describe you today? Weary, exhausted? Well, there's hope for you today in the Lord. The everlasting God, because he doesn't grow weary. He does not faint. It says, he gives power to the weak. And to those who have no might or power, he gives strength. So when you have nothing, nothing left, that's where you can begin entering into this hope. When you have nothing, he can be your all in all. In Christ Jesus, we find rest for our souls and we call on the name of the Lord 
whose gracious grace is sufficient now and forever. So we're all works in progress, no matter how much, uh, how many facts from the scriptures we know, how many experiences we have. There are countless areas we have room to grow in our faith in God, hope in his promises and our love towards one another. Jesus said in John 6, 29, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. So let's heed this rebuke from the Lord, this gentle reproof. Why do we say that our way is hidden from the Lord when he is the way of righteousness? So as we abide in Christ, let's deep drink deeply of his grace, of his presence and having received his reproof and his instruction, let's rest and rejoice in him. Let's abide in the vine. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word and for the way you speak to us, that you know our needs even before we ask and that you've provided all good things for us. And Lord, forgive me when I have forgotten, when I have, I have not remembered you. And I have not always sought you. And I pray that you would show me, Lord, where just my total need for you. And for all of us, Lord, that we would not just try to press on in our own strength, but in our weakness, discover the strength that you have to supply us by your grace, according to your promise and the covenant that you've made with us with the shed blood of Jesus. Lord, we thank you that you are patient with us, that you have not demanded perfection, but Lord, you require us to walk humbly with our God, to do justly, to love mercy, to love one another as you love us. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't just be asking the questions, but we'd answer your questions. We'd receive that reproof that you have for us, that we might grow deeper in a relationship with you. We might draw closer to you. Our faith would increase in you. And through us, Lord, you would be glorified. Thank you for making us your witnesses. That we are your witnesses. We are the tangible evidence of the transaction that's taken place through the shed blood of Jesus and through your redemption. Thank you, Lord, for reconciling us to you. Thank you for giving us new life and a hope and a future that does not fade away. And I pray we would uh, just draw near to you now, Lord, in rejoicing and celebrating and and just humbly confessing our need for you. In Jesus' name, amen.